You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me. And the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, we are back. It is 2022. Uh, Man, a new year, a new round of episodes, a lot going on with the Ann campaign. And and personally, man, how are you feeling on this first episode of the Church Politics Podcast in 2022? Man, I am. uh, I'm excited. This is uh, a brand new year, and I'm just looking forward to uh, a lot of good and exciting things happening. Yeah, man, always so much to talk about. Uh, you know, when we left, I, I, I'm, I'm a, since we left, I should say, I'm a, I'm a year older and just ready to kind of dig in, man. The Ann campaign has so many, and we've kind of been <laughs> we've kind of been teasing it a little bit, but the Ann campaign has so many uh, interesting and, and constructive things coming up that's helping us build this institution. Uh, that we're creating, man. And it's just been a great year. Now, I'm going to ask everybody out there in the audience today to give me a little grace. I got my two oldest sons with me. It's a test to see if they'll actually be quiet during this whole episode. So we're going to see if they can do it. If not, there may be some consequences, but hopefully they can make it through. Uh, If not, please give me a little bit of grace. And I also want to call out the grace that many of you guys gave me last episode. Last episode, we had a conversation about Tim Keller, and we were addressing some of the unfair critiques of Tim Keller coming from conservatives. But I kept saying progressives. And when I heard when I went back and I listened to the episode, I was cringing the whole time because on like four occasions, I said progressives when I meant conservatives. And so I know some of y'all probably spotted that. Thank you for the grace there. I'm not exactly sure why my co-host did not stop me. I'm going to give him a, a chance to explain himself. But I made that mistake, and I appreciate the grace. Hey, I appreciate the grace from you. <laughs> didn't catch it. Fair enough, man. We go, but we're going to go ahead and get into it, man. So as usual, we're doing the same thing we did in 2021, 2020, and before. Grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think. Not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Chris, last year here on the Church Politics Podcast, we did an episode on the voting rights debate that was raging around America. And I think it was our most popular or one of our most popular episodes ever. As usual, we broke down the issue piece by piece. We debunked the myths and we broke away from some of the more popular narratives. We told the audience what neither party nor the mainstream media is willing to admit. And if you don't already know, that's what these two brothers on this here podcast do. That's our conviction. And that is our brand. If you if you missed the episode, uh, go check it out. It was released on uh, March 31st, 2021, and it is worth a listen. I think it was a really uh, educational. People got a lot out of it. We got a lot of commentary on that episode and uh, people seem to really appreciate it. Well, unfortunately, even though we covered it uh, last year, the issue still hasn't been resolved. It left the front pages for a while as COVID COVID ebbed and flowed and infrastructure was on the front. uh, It was really front and center on the Democratic Party's agenda. But for good reason, uh, voting rights advocates never stopped pressing the issue. Civil rights organizations kept the heat on Biden and Schumer and Pelosi And now it seems the Democrats have pivoted back toward voting rights, maybe in part because Joe Manchin shot down Biden's Build Back Better legislation, at least for now. There's a lot going on behind the scenes that I'm sure we don't know. On Monday, though, Senator Chuck Schumer, majority leader uh, in the Senate, announced that the Democrats would move forward on voting rights legislation. But not just that, Chris. He also said that they are willing to change the rules of the Senate by January 17th. And note that that is Martin Luther King Day, 
Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the celebration, you know, the national celebration of the national holiday. And that's not by mistake, but they're willing to change the rules of the Senate if the GOP blocks the bill. This basically means that Democrats are willing to change the filibuster. And we've had an episode, go look it up, where we went in depth on what the filibuster is and what it would mean to change the filibuster. We talked about the history of it and all that. So go back and check that one out, too. But in general, whereas in the House, uh, it only takes a majority vote to get legislation passed in the Senate, it actually takes 60 votes. And so it has to be more than a majority because of the filibuster, which can kind of stop the vote. So look that up for more information. But. The legislation that Schumer is talking about is the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Act, which, among other things, would ensure that all states have early voting. It would make it would uh, make Election Day a public holiday and it would ensure the availability of mail in voting. So there's some other things that go along with that, but that's the gist of it. And I personally agree with most of what, what's in those bills. So now that we've heard from Schumer, the real question is, Chris, what's the plan? And does he actually have the votes to get this legislation passed? Because the Republicans are going to block the legislation. That's a foregone conclusion. But but have Schumer or Biden convinced Senator Joe Manchin or Senator Sinema to change the filibuster? Exactly which voter rights legislation would they be voting on is mansion i know mansion had his own bill have they convinced mansion to go along with, with with the other bills what exactly is going on here there's a there's a lot at stake and i don't have all the answers to those questions but i but that does kind of provide you with the context and with some of the obstacles that the democrats are facing now another possibility and maybe this is a a, a little uh more cynical on behalf of of, of these folks Another possibility, Chris, is that he doesn't actually have the votes and he knows he's not going to get Cinema or Manchin to get rid of the filibuster. Cinema says she's not going to do it. Manchin hasn't been so clear on what he thinks about it. But even though he doesn't have the votes, what might be happening is that he's gotten so much pre- pressure from civil rights activists and others that he needed to do something, especially on MLK Day. Another thing that could happen is that he doesn't have the votes, but Democrats are using this issue along with the January 6th insurrection to give them a little bit of momentum or at least something to focus on as an issue for the upcoming midterm election. Is that the case? I think that would kind of be worst case scenario, but it is possible. And we'll just kind of have to wait to see uh, what happens. Now, Yuval Levin, a conservative political uh, analyst and the director of social and cultural social cultural and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute, weighed in on the subject as well. Now, Levin uh, wrote the book A Time to Build, which is a book that Chris and I highly recommend. Uh, I think he's a smart guy, not always right, but always intellectually honest, in my opinion. I would say that Republicans would probably be in a much better position right now if they simply listen to Levin. So he, he's one of those guys that you should check out if you haven't already. In his New York Times article, he states that the approaches of Democrats and Republicans when it comes to voting rights and uh, election reform undermine or at least risk undermining public confidence in elections without achieving practical significance. Levin believes a narrow set of reforms could actually solve some of the very real problems with elections in this country and could attract support from both parties. The most intense concerns, Levin says, about election administration on the right and on the left involve not voting itself, but what happens after voting is done. He goes on to say that Republicans say the process of counting and certifying the vote in some states was corrupt in 2020. Dems insist that Republicans are preparing to manipulate the certification process in some states. Levin's solution is this. Levin suggests that we should clarify uh, Congress's role in certifying presidential elections and rid the process of opportunities for confusion and mischief. He says we should focus on electoral certification, not voter access. 
we should modernize the Electoral Count Act of 1887. He goes on to make some other points. He says that Democrats want to focus on access, but the truth is it's easier than ever to vote. Registration has gotten simpler in recent decades, and most Americans have more time to vote and more ways to do it. Voter turnout is at historic highs, and black and white voting rates now rise and fall together. These trends long predate the pandemic, and efforts to roll back some states' uh, uh, COVID-era accommodations seem unlikely to meaningfully affect turnout. On the other side, he says that Republicans folks focus on voter fraud. But according to this conservative, again, Levin is a conservative. According to this conservative, voter fraud is vanishingly, quote unquote, rare. The most thorough database of cases maintained by one of the staunchest conservative defenders of election integrity uh, suggests a rate of fraud so low it could not meaningfully affect outcomes. That's pretty deep. Uh, again, this is a good article. I would read it. A few more things that he says in it is this, and then we'll kind of get to the discussion. He says that both parties are saying it's all about rights and saving democracy, but less probably virtuous partisan motives are, as usual, part of their calculations as well. Uh, Levin says that Republicans assume that lower turnout will help the right win more elections. And some of the restrictions they want to impose, like limiting Sunday voting, frankly reek of the racist practices long used to deny the vote to black Americans and other minorities. Democrats, on the other hand, assume that higher turnout will help the left win more elections. And some of the practices they want to enshrine, like voter harvesting, in which other people collect ballots for delivery to polling places, frankly reek of the corrupt practices that political machines have long employed. Interesting article. Again, we want everybody to read it. We'll probably put the link into the show notes as usual. And I had to think through this, man. I agree with Levin on some of his points here. Um, I think that both parties should pay more attention to electoral certification. That just hasn't been as much of the part of as much of a part of the conversation as it should have been. I think that is something that's worth prioritizing because it does hit on two of the biggest complaints that both sides have. Uh, I think that both uh, sides have some partisan motives mixed in with their concerns about democracy. Even if they say it's all just about saving democracy, there's some uh, self-interest in there as usual. Uh, And I think when you look closely at their narratives on both sides, if you look at the narratives and the facts, They just don't always square. So there are some things that I think he pointed out that make sense. However, there's a few things where I just have to disagree. And the first is, Chris, Dems don't have anything comparable to Trump's big lie that they're defending right now. So if both parties are getting something wrong, I think we have to acknowledge that they're getting it wrong to different extents. Right. Um that's something, you know, we want to make sure that we're, we don't have a, a false equivalency here. I think there is a, di- a, a, a considerable difference there. Uh, next, I just wouldn't dismiss the access issue as easily as he does. Yes, turnout is up. Yes, that's something that a lot of Democrats don't want to talk about, because when you say, you know, the new Voting Rights Act in Georgia is Jim Crow, and then you look and see, wait, we had a record turnout. It doesn't quite fit. I get that. But we need to be proactive in making sure that nothing is done to change the fact that people have access to admit that some people uh, on the right are trying to limit access and then not be proactive about preventing that seems to me a little bit irresponsible. Lastly, election issues aren't just about presidential elections. Uh, They are about elections in general. And I don't think uh, that gives gets enough recognition there. I don't think his solution really takes that into consideration as much as it as it should. But that said, uh, as has become the uh, mode of operation for the Democrats, I do think when you look at these two bills very closely, and people have to look at these bills. We can't just talk, talk about what everybody's talking about. And, you know, this is a big issue and people want you to talk. But do you know what's in the bill? If you don't know exactly what's in the bill, then find out before you try to push it forward. Right. But I think one of the problems is there are a few things in these in these bills when you put them together 
that are just extra stuff that Democrats threw in that kind of, in a way, could lose a little bit of the credibility of it. Like I said, most of it I'm cool with. There's some things I think when you talk about the ballot harvesting, that is something we have to talk about. That's something that probably could have been left out. And then there's there's a, a few other other measures. But in general, I think voter rights are important. We need to make sure that people have access, but we need to make sure that we're looking at both sides of the conversation and not equating them, but knowing where the arguments are coming from. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, also think that uh, Yuval Levin is a, a, a great commenter. Uh, and I'm, I'm appreciative of this particular article. Um, but as I read it, I thought about uh, a few things. You know, f- first off, sort of democracy reform, democracy protection has been uh, a, a passion of mine for, you know, for a long time. Some of the early work uh, that I did was voter registration uh, with youth and it's, it's a big piece. And I think that we are always actually going to miss the real point um, of the issue if we look at election reform and democracy reform, primarily from the perspective of how it impacts political parties uh, and not how it impacts people. Uh, and, and that's one of the things I, I do feel like even in this article, uh, we're still thinking about, well, how does it impact the Democrats? How does it impact the Republicans? Uh, and, and really, the vast majority of Americans are not hardline partisans, right? Like over 40 percent of Americans identify as independents. Um, that's more than the number who identify uh, as Democrats or Republicans. Um, and like you said, uh, this issue is not just about presidential elections. It's certainly not just about the 2020 uh, presidential election. And what I can tell you, having uh, worked with the MICFA Challenge and uh, done a lot of different things in, in democracy reform, people, especially young people, uh, have been losing faith and trust in our democracy for a long time uh, before the 2020 election. Um, and, and that's because we do have uh, a system that's structurally broken. Um, it's, it's not just, you know, ballot access, which is very, very important. Uh, it's not just election certification, which is important. Um, it's, it's the fact that like most Americans live in congressional districts that are so badly gerrymandered that they know before they vote who's going to win the election, right? Because the election is decided on how the maps draw. It's the fact that people know that elected officials all throughout the country are disproportionately wealthier than the general population because of the ridiculously outsized role that money plays uh, in our politics here in Illinois. We had a billionaire, uh, Bruce Rauner, come in and spend a bunch of money and win the governorship. Uh, and the way he was defeated is that uh, Pritzker came along, J.B. Pritzker, a bigger billionaire, uh, and spent more money and won the election. And now uh, the biggest billionaire we have in our state, Ken Griffin, is pledging to spend a lot of money to take, you know, this governor out. It's like we can't have a system that you got to be a billionaire to have political influence. Um, you know, beyond those two things, you have this influence, especially in Washington, of sort of lobbyists and special, special interest groups where in a big way, no matter who wins elections to a lot of people, it seems like the same policies or very similar policies are uh, pursued regardless of who's in office and who, who won the election. And so I, I would sort of suggest um, almost the opposite of what Levin is writing in this article. I think that the problems uh, that we face in our democracy are much more complex uh, and not simple. Um, unfortunately, I wish it were the case that they were more simple and that there were a few things that we could do and get everything uh, to where it needs to be. But I just don't think that's the case. I think that there are very, very complex issues. Now, um, I, I probably would agree that finding some place of common ground and working from that place uh, as a way to begin to build trust, the kind of trust that it would take to do uh, the very courageous things that are necessary uh, on redistricting and campaign finance law and even thinking about 
open primaries or exploring ranked choice, different things to give folks a sense, uh, not just that you have access to the vote and that when you vote, uh, that ballot's going to be counted, but that is actually substantively uh, uh, relevant to actually go out and vote. And so I, I think that those are the things that I always think about when I think about electoral reform. Like, I, I don't think that the majority of Americans are t- super invested in how it's going to shake out for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. They think about how it's going to shake out for, for their families, for their kids' education, for health care, for housing. And I'm not sure that a lot of people are convinced that their vote has the kind of effect uh, that it, we really should have. Uh, when it comes to those issues. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not sure that uh, Levin would disagree with you in regard to the fact that it shouldn't be looked at as just a partisan. Like, how does it affect Democrats or, or Republicans? I think he was trying to be practical and say what may be keeping these folks from voting for this or wanting to vote for it and, and, and all that. And it's just going to be interesting to see how it shakes out. This is a major move. It's something that's been coming up. It's something that a lot of activists have been pushing for, especially when it comes to the filibuster. And it's just going to be really interesting to see how Schumer makes this happen. What what deals are going behind the scenes? Because this isn't, you know, we don't have to look at this. I'm sure they're probably not looking at this in isolation, right? They may be looking at this as coupled with Build Back Better and the rewriting of Build Back Better and what they need to get to get Manchin there. They're looking at it with the fact that, hey, Schumer knows he has a lot of activists that have been on his tail that he has to get something done. All this stuff is playing together, and I think it's going to make for if you know it's not entertainment but it's certainly going to be interesting back and forth and i just hope we get something done that's substantive i hope that somebody comes through and says i'm going to be a leader and not necessarily be worried about what the base has to say or what any or any of that other stuff that has to happen we have a terrible history of violations of voters rights in this country we need to take care of it but we need to take care of it based on narratives that are honest so even as somebody who's in full support of, of voting rights, I still want to make sure that people understand what actually happened, even in places here like Georgia. You had a lot of people, you know, blaming the state for things that actually happened with for the county. Now, as a Democrat, I could easily ignore those things and just act like the narrative was clean. But what we want to do is get to a point where we can be honest and really address the issues. And I'm hoping uh, that folks in Congress aren't just focused on the more cynical things or the more partisan things that we we talked about as well, but really about the uh, the rights of people and also the integrity of, ele- of of elections and making sure that this stuff is done fairly certified correctly. But I agree with you, Chris, if you if you look outside of voter rights and outside of this conversation, we have bigger issues that involve the bigger system that really need to be addressed and that we really need to make sure our representatives have integrity as they address them. But I'll let you carry us out on this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I really hope that something substantive gets done um, and something courageous. I mean, some of the I think the biggest problem with election reform and democracy reform is that you're asking people with power to curtail their own power. Uh, and, and that is something that I think is difficult for people to uh, conceive of, difficult for people to do. Um, but it is the right thing to do. Uh, I think it would be short-sighted for both parties uh, to allow a system to perpetuate where essentially, uh, and I think U11 actually points this out in his article, where essentially both parties are messaging to their base that maybe you won't be able to trust the election. And if that's what you got to say to your base, that's not good for democracy. And if, if we lose the faith in our democracy, well, both parties lose whatever power they have. So I hope that people are able to take uh, the long view of this and do some things to begin to walk some of this uh, uh, distrust back and start to move the country in, in the right direction. And it will mean curtailing some entrenched power uh, for people in both parties. Uh, but I do think it's the right thing to do. I hope that they're able to... Uh, arrive at something and maybe something surprising takes place uh, where it, it happens on even a bipartisan basis. But maybe that's super wishful thinking. Uh, but we'll see. And interestingly enough, you never hear the minority asking for the filibuster to, to, to go away. Right. So that that argument about getting rid of the filibuster for some reason, I know it's principled. I know it's all about principle right now. 
But for some reason, it's only the only folks that make that argument are the folks in the majority that don't have a large enough majority to get done what they want to get done. We'll see if folks keep that same energy if the majority switches to the other party. We'll have to see. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. You know, I've said this ad nauseum on this podcast, Chris, and you may be tired of me saying it, but I believe that defund the police as a substantive policy and as a slogan will go down as one of the most ridiculous and counterproductive efforts of the decade and maybe beyond. It clearly put on display the the far left's disconnection with the community and perhaps their disconnection with reality. I'm all for police reform. We've talked about that over and over on here, too. And I'm not I'm not for using cops where other actors would be better suited to intervene. I agree with all of that stuff. I also uh, don't have a problem with looking at budgets and seeing how budgets can be used in better ways. That's always a good idea. You never want to take that stuff uh, for granted. But the idea that crime ridden communities don't need police officers, police officers is quite simply foolish. It's unwise, it's utopian, and it's very dangerous to the most vulnerable vulnerable people. What crime does to communities and does to children is heartbreaking. To ignore the need for police, not as the only answer, but as a necessity, is foolish. It's not something that we should promote. While many progressive activists and academics have still won't admit how bad that slogan and that policy was, even after African-Americans and others overwhelmingly said that they want no parts of defunding the police because they actually have to live in these neighborhoods. After all of that, it does seem that some progressive mayors, though, Chris, are changing their tune. Probably because they actually have to govern, whereas activists and academics Don't have to worry about all that stuff. For example, London Breed, who is the mayor of San Francisco, uh, she has done a complete 180 and I applaud it. She she's pledged to get more aggressive with law enforcement, even declaring a state of emergency in regard to crime in some areas of San Francisco. Uh, Here's what she said recently, Chris, in uh, I guess it was a few weeks ago. Here's what she recently said in a speech on this subject. She said, it's time the reign of criminals who are destroying our city comes to an end. And it comes to an end when we take the steps to more to more aggressive, to be more aggressive with law enforcement, more aggressive with the changes in our policies and less tolerant of the BS. And she didn't say BS but less tolerant tolerant of the BS that has destroyed our city. That is quite a turn. Chris, just a year and a half ago, Breed was promising to redirect $120 million from the police department's budget. The cuts ended up being significantly smaller than that, but the next two-year budget for the police uh, is growing back to where it was before. So I think a lot of folks are realizing that was a mistake. And you guys have seen the pictures. You've seen what's happening in Portland. You've seen what's happening in Seattle. You've seen what's happening in San Francisco. You got people just going up to stores and things like that, just taking stuff out the streets. I mean, it's just a a bad, bad situation. Somebody who's wrote a little uh, a bit about that is Michael uh, Schellenberger. He is the author of uh, San Francisco, Why Progressives uh, Ruin Cities. And he said this. He said that uh, uh, he said that Breed has just interrupted the San Francisco as a bastion of crime and lawlessness narrative with her press conference. He thinks that she's positioned herself well as a moderate. Now, uh, Schellenberger is a progressive, but he's a progressive that's really come to question some of the progressive attitudes and policies when it comes to crimes and things like that. I haven't read uh, San Francisco yet, but it is one of those books that that I've heard is very good and you may want to check out yourself. But he's saying that he's been saying for a while that 
cities like San Francisco are really deteriorating. It's not they're not good places to live, especially for folks who are low income, if they can even live there at all. And that changes need to be made. And this seems to be a response to that type of sentiment. Now, it sounds like a lot of folks uh, in some of these progressive cities are really just coming back to reality. You also see cities like New York electing a tough on crime or at least smart on crime mayor uh, in Eric Adams, who is promising. Listen to this. He is promising law and order. He's promising law and order and saying law and order uh, explicitly. And that is not a term that you hear a lot of times coming from progressives. But listen to what uh, Adams said. He was just uh, he just became the mayor of New York. And this is what he said. Uh, about crime in that city. He said that justice and public safety go together. I don't subscribe to the belief of some that you can only have justice and not public safety. We will have both. That sounds familiar. Both and heard that somewhere before. He says that our police officers will be responsible. They will understand how to properly police our city, but we will also uh, send a loud and clear message you will not bring violence to this city. Uh, and so it sounds like he's very serious about what he's trying to do, has a completely different message than the mayor's, the last mayor that we heard in New York City, than a lot of mayors that you saw in progressive cities. But I welcome this change. Uh, I think where this started actually was in a good place, Chris. I think people saw uh, police abuses. People saw uh, things going on that shouldn't have been. But unfortunately, I think folks wanted to go to the opposite extreme. And that's just not the answer. It just wasn't a thoughtful answer. But it's good to see people going back to something more thoughtful like justice and public safety and not just acting like we can have justice and not be worried about how people are treated in these high crime neighborhoods. Because the thing about high crime areas is they victimize the most vulnerable in our society. They bring uh property values down. They make it so that uh, certain stores don't want to come in certain neighborhoods. There's a lot of things that go on that hurt people. So this isn't just about the sensibilities of the folks across the tracks. This is about the people who actually have to experience this crime. And it's uh, it's good. It's, it's positive for me to see this is changing a little bit. I hate that it had to come at, you know, some of these cr- crime rates just exploding. What's your point of view on uh, this conversation about progressive mayors cracking down on crime, Chris? Well, you know, I I live in one of those progressive cities uh, in which uh, crime has been uh, out of control, especially violent crime. Uh, And, you know, it is needful to shift to that, uh, to that sort of footing. I'm trying to be judicious in what I say, but I, you know, I, I think there's more shifting that needs to be done here in Chicago uh, on this very point because, uh, as you said, and, and I, I think the quote from Eric Adams uh, is is perfect. Uh, it it is a false choice um, to suggest that we can either have justice or public safety. Um, there is a way to do both, uh, and I think that you can. Uh, support police and hold them accountable. Uh, it's it's uh, and it, it's quite necessary to, to do because when you have you know an elderly homeowner who does not feel safe in their own home and in their own neighborhood, it's not justice to say then you know well we're going to cut funding from the police um, and make it even less likely that there's you know uh, a cop working a beat. Um, at the time where somebody decides to do something stupid uh, in your particular neighborhood or your particular block. Uh, that's not justice for that homeowner. Uh, and the same thing for businesses, these sort of snatch and grab robberies. And, and so you have to invest in law enforcement. That's why we have laws, so that we can have order, which we need in order to have the kind of flourishing communities that we want to have. Now, does that negate the reality that we do need um, prevention strategies and intervention strategies and uh, working to bring down poverty and all those things? We absolutely need those things, but you can't tell, um, you know, the the seventy five year old homeowner that she's got to wait until we deal with poverty. 
before she can feel safe in her community, right? Like that's the purpose of law enforcement. We, we, we should be, you know, supporting law enforcement. We should be holding people accountable uh, for, for, for crimes. And I'm looking this morning at an article in the, uh, the Tribune from uh, a piece that Arnie Duncan put out. And he's, uh, he said that in his particular organization where he's working on violence prevention, he's got a hundred clients who's, who've been immediately involved uh, in some kind of uh, shooting incident and not a single arrest or conviction in any of those cases. That's a problem. If people feel that they can freely commit crime, freely commit murder and get away with it, uh, a lot of folks are going to go ahead and opt to do that. And when there's no justice, when nobody gets arrested, and nobody gets uh, 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 convicted. I think that also feeds, you know, this sort of retaliation dynamic. Right. If you don't get legal justice through the legal system, then that's where that street justice begins to come into play. Um, so for, for a whole host of reasons, this is what you do for the good of the folks uh, in the community. And I think it's very unfortunate uh, that this sort of divide has opened up uh, sort of in the Democratic Party where so many have pushed for this very drastic and I mean, it's almost like a fantasy world where you can just disappear police and everything's going to be better because of it. That's not going to happen. That was never going to work. Um, and so I'm glad to see that the process is underway of getting back to something uh, more balanced, more pragmatic, uh, and ultimately, I think, more effective for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that progressives because there's always the question that a conservative would ask can progressives govern right and i think progressives can govern i don't think they can govern when they buy into terrible narratives like this and with the and campaign we talk a lot about compassion and i want to be fair i I think a lot of people who took the defund the police position who are police abolitionists and all this other stuff i think they are trying to be compassionate i think they're saying hey it comes to perspective which i don't think is necessarily a christian perspective that it's not people who are bad, it's society that's bad. And so when society stops in, uh, impacting people, we can see how good that people are. And I think that misunderstands human nature. Um, but I also think it's a distorted form of compassion. Because to be compassionate from a societal standpoint, by not holding people accountable, by not punishing people when they need to be punished and when they violated their neighbor, is not compassion. Right. It's not. We've already talked about how it affects children. We've talked about how how it affects the elderly. People can't come out of their houses. And so for people even to suggest that there shouldn't be police, I don't know how you can do that if you live in these areas. And I think a lot of people that are making that suggestion from these uh, ivory towers don't live in those areas. And the ones that do must be in some type of lifestyle enclave where they just don't understand the suffering and the pain that goes on. And the fact that the, the 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 science the the data bears it out police presence makes crime go down yeah. makes violent it's crime num- go it's down it's the number one deterrent it's a deterrent now is it everything no is it the only answer absolutely not chris has worked in these in these areas he knows it's not the only answer but it is a necessity and there are people in every uh community rich communities and poor communities that will violate that community that will tear that community apart if they know that there's nobody to stop them from doing it. That's part of life. That's part of human nature. If you're wise, you start to understand that and you can look through history and see it. When we get to a point where we think compassion is to deny that, we've come to a place where we can't govern. We've come to a place where we can't deal with reality and a lot of people are going to be hurt because of it. But Chris, I'll let you end us again on this one. Yeah, no, I mean, it it is a a complicated uh, issue at some level because uh, you absolutely don't want uh, to give this sort of sense that we're saying, like, hey, we don't care if the police are abusive or, um, you know, harassing people or anything like that. Uh, This is not to say that, hey, let's give carte blanche to 
um, you know, to law enforcement. Uh, it, it is to say only two things. One is that we shouldn't paint all of law, law enforcement with that broad breaststroke. Uh, and two, that we can hold our police departments accountable uh, and uh, expect a, a, a professional uh, approach to policing without trying to disappear police. It's the biggest issue that I think uh, has, has sort of tripped things up in a lot of these cities uh, is that sort of either or approach that either you're for um, sort of accountability and alleviating that sense of uh, oppression uh, in the community from actual law enforcement or, um, you know, you just want to give carte blanche and, and let everything go. It's not an either or. You know, I'm, I'm sure people who listen to the Church Politics podcast think that we, you know, get to a broken record rhythm on this both and thing. But in so many cases, that's the real uh, issue is that folks get forced into these false dilemmas uh, where they end up trying to make a choice that you really shouldn't make because it's, it's got to be both together. Yeah. And we're a broken record on this on purpose. Repeating things uh, is is something that is necessary many times. And so we're going to repeat that over and over until the more of the church understands what, what we mean. I think Eric Adams hit it on on the head. We need public safety and we need justice. And anybody who listens to this podcast and can come away saying, oh, these guys don't care about police abuse. Well, you're not listening. You're not you're not being into, you know, you're not being a charitable or intellectually honest in what we're saying. Yes, we want people to be protected. We will go out and we will do what we have to do to make sure that people are not being abused by the authorities. However, we don't have to go to the other extreme and act like public safety isn't an issue and that the police don't have a job to do. To do that is to not understand what it takes to to govern. We'll be back in a second. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Now, I don't want to make this whole episode about Mayor Eric Adams, um, but he also had some interesting things to say about COVID. So he was just uh, brought into office, I think, a couple of days ago. He spoke on, you know, he's talked about law and order, uh, but he also talked about COVID. And here's what he had to say about COVID, which is a change from what we've heard from kind of the Northeast in general when it comes to this matter from their leadership. He says this. He says that COVID is a formidable opponent and continues to evolve and we must pivot and evolve with it. But you can't do it viewing yourself from within the crisis. We have to uh, see ourselves past the crisis. Uh, if we close down our city, it is as dangerous as COVID. I want to say that one more time. He says, if we close down our city, it is as dangerous as COVID. That's what our focus must be so that proper balance of safety and keeping our economy operating. He's talking about a balance again is going to allow us to get through this. We've talked about this again several times. To me, Chris, this sounds like common sense leadership. Uh, no one is saying don't worry about covid. It's not a big deal. What, what's going on? 
But we said for a long time, Chris, especially when it came to young people, especially when it came to education, you can you have to realize that the only risk here is not people passing away from COVID. You have to realize that the risk here is kids who are out of school, kids who may never catch up and a bunch of other things that go on. We can talk about the economy, too. But especially when it comes to kids, this was very dangerous. I believe that most people, most leaders did the best that they could do. But unfortunately, with COVID, it became politicized. And I I think people took sides rather than thinking through it a little more clearly. So we've already advocated for people to to uh, to get the shot if that's what they want to do. We think that's a smart thing to do. Get the booster if 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 uh, uh, we think that's a smart thing to do for yourself and for your neighbor. We want to make sure that people are safe. We want to social distance, do all the things that are necessary. But that's not the only factor that matters. And I like the fact that some uh, executives, some folks in, in higher office, especially in these places where they weren't making those considerations, are start a, starting to think about it a little differently. Chris, any thoughts on uh, Eric Adams and his his thoughts on moving forward with COVID? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's part of the reason why I'm uh, quickly becoming, I think, an Eric Adams fan. Um, but I, I saw my neighbor yesterday, uh, and I ha- who I haven't seen since the beginning of the pandemic, and he was completely gray. Uh, and this is a neighbor who I don't think had any gray hair the last time that I saw him. And it just struck me how long two years really is. Um, to just lose that much life, uh, like you said, for little kids to lose that much uh, education, never, never going to be able to catch that up without some kind of major, major uh, uh, intervention, the likes of which we've never seen. Um, you know, you have college students, uh, you know, folks have lost their graduation ceremonies, um, people's careers have had to be pushed back two years, um, just over and over. I mean, I also look at, you know, the, the data point that came out, uh, you know, 2021, the number one killer of uh, Americans, I think 18 to somewhere around 40, uh, but young Americans died of fentanyl overdose more than anything else, period, right? Like we, we cannot just continue to see all of life uh, to to this this virus, I, I really appreciate something that came out. I, I watched one of the interviews with Mayor Adams, and uh, the reporter tried to challenge him on, you know, well, maybe we have to shut down the city because some of the subway lines are not running. And he quickly pointed out, some of the subway lines are not running, but some that's better than all of the subway lines not running. Uh, we have to start finding ways at this point. Um, to get into uh, sustainable rhythms of life because uh, there's so many other uh, outcomes that are not good. I mean, you look at the data around how much weight America has gained uh, in this pandemic, you know, loneliness, uh, you know, is, is declared a public health crisis. There's too many things, other negative impacts that will come from just completely shutting down our society. We've got to find ways to go for it. So I appreciate that leadership uh, out of New York, which is a place that, uh, in a lot of ways, sets sets the, the trend for a lot of places. Yeah, it does. And again, he's not saying let's not take any precautions, but he's saying there's there is a cost that comes along with shutting everything down. And that's a cost that I think on the left, people didn't see enough. I think people on the right didn't see the cost of not uh, shutting some stuff down. So, so it has always kind of been somewhat of a balance, but really just thinking your way through it. Uh, and, and so it's good to hear that thoughtfulness. And I'm sure he's getting some pushback on that. So he has a lot. He has an uphill battle. This isn't just a, a, a full endorsement of everything he's going to do. We'll see how he reacts in office and we'll continue to evaluate that. But one thing I did like, and I don't know if you saw this or not, uh, Chris, but one thing I did appreciate is once he was sworn into office, he had a bunch of praying grandmothers go up there there and pray for him. Now, I don't know about you, Chris, but I had a praying grandmother. And so any any anybody who has the sense has sense enough, who who has the sensibilities and the understanding to get some prayer from some praying grandmothers in public as you go into that kind of position, 
seems like he is somebody I can I can rock with a little bit. So we'll see how he he reacts. But that did kind of endear me a little bit to what he's trying to do because he's I mean he has a lot of lives in his hands. He has a big city that, as you pointed out, affects the United States in general. And so it's gonna be interesting. I hope him. I hope he has success. And it's gonna be interesting to see how he handles this. Yeah, man. Shout out to my grandmother because uh, she's definitely a praying grandmother, and 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 my praying mother's committee uh, in my campaign because I have one. Uh, so ah, I didn't see that with, with Eric Adams, but uh, that's just another thing. I mean, I'm I'm trying not to become too much of a fan, uh, you know, too quickly because it's you know it's it's early still, but. I appreciate hey, a lot of what I see. Yeah, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to call ball, balls and strikes. If he gets something wrong, we're going we gonna to say that he got something wrong. But I think this is a good way to start off. I think it shows you how the narrative can change. The, you know, this is a city that many wouldn't have thought would have someone who's taken this position in this day and age. Right. And so uh, it's good to see somebody kind of challenging some of the narratives and hopefully it works out. If not, we'll have some commentary about that, too. Man, I just want to thank everybody for joining us. This is the first episode again of 2022. We want we're going to be bringing you a, a lot of information. As uh, we always try to mention, we are partnering with the Fetzer Institute, who is uh, sponsoring uh, this podcast, and so we appreciate everything uh, that they do and appreciate that that partnership. Uh, and as we said before, we're going to start answering your questions. So if you get on our Patreon, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/ChurchPolitics and you become one of our patrons. We're going to actually answer your questions. So if you send us uh, your questions over Patreon, we're going to start having um, premium sessions where we answer those questions and kind of go into depth on that. Thank you for the support. Please continue to support us. This isn't free. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot out of us to, to get this content to you. And so help us to bring that content, become a part of the movement and not just a spectator in this movement. But as always, ANCAMP, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, man camp. I'll let you. Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. I said kingdom.